Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and that is me. We have had a busy week media news and this podcast is going to address some of that media news specifically the ongoing surprisingly ongoing joe rogan neil young spotify controversy and crucially why other musicians have not followed neil young's footsteps so for that one we brought in bloomberg's excellent lucas shaw to have a quick conversation about what's happening what's not happening and and sort of where we go from here if you want to hear more about what I think about Spotify and Neil Young and Joe Rogan, I wrote about it for free on Vox.com. You can see that anytime you want. I think that story still holds up pretty well, if I say so myself. A story we're not going to cover this week is Jeff Zucker's surprising forced resignation from CNN. That's shortly before CNN launches its own streaming service and in the run-up to CNN's parent company, Warner Media, going from AT&T to Discovery. It's a very big deal, um, but any guest we would have on today is reporting that story or is not answering our calls because they don't want to be part of the story. But I'm sure we got to come back to it one way or another. And then we're very much talking about something that's not newsy, but it's in the news. It's how to run a new media company in 2022 with two people who are taking very different approaches. Brian Morrissey used to run Digiday. Now he runs The Rebooting. That's an excellent one-man newsletter podcast operation, very much aimed at the kind of people who listen to this podcast. And Lauren Williams used to be my boss as the editor-in-chief of Vox.com, and now she's the CEO and co-founder of Capital B. It's a news site aimed at black audiences. It's got both a national edition and it tends to do local news as well. They've launched an Atlanta site. And the plan is to expand slowly and cautiously over the next couple of years. Uh, two very interesting people, two different, very different products, different approaches towards business, funding, and audience, and more. And I think you will enjoy the conversation I had with the two of them. Okay, first off, here's me and Lucas Shaw. I'm here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Lucas and I were talking earlier. We, uh, we said we were not surprised when uh, Joe Rogan and Neil Young and Spotify became a story last week, but we are surprised that it still seems to be a story a week later. Uh, welcome, Lucas. Great to be back, Peter. Again, this, the super brief summary of the beginning of the Joe Rogan, Neil Young Spotify controversy was that Neil Young said to Spotify, I don't like the fact that you're distributing and paying for Joe Rogan. I believe Joe Rogan is spreading misinformation about COVID. He's hurting people. I don't want to be on a platform that has him. Spotify essentially said, okay, we're siding with Joe Rogan. You can leave. Neil Young left. And what has happened after that, Lucas? Well, for a day or two, I think Spotify, music companies, a lot of people with vested interest in the music business just continuing to grow and be stable thought that Neil Young might be a lone wolf. Um, but late on on a Friday night, Joni Mitchell announced that she was joining Neil Young in, a, in, in boycotting. They, they share a manager. They're both Canadian singer-songwriters. They both, I believe, suffered from polio as children and are thus kind of acutely uh, sensitive to the idea of vaccines. The next day, Nils Lofgren, who has worked with Neil Young in the past, joined. Um, and they started to gather this momentum where it felt like Spotify had to do something. You know, their podcast host, Brene Brown, said that she was going to stop uploading new episodes. There was just this risk that it would snowball and, you know, you turn in a week later, Taylor Swift would, would threaten to do something. And so Spotify on, on, uh, on Sunday said that it was, one, going to publish its content moderation guidelines. These are things that we've seen Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and many others release in response to kind of claims of misinformation. And said that it would start putting advisories on any podcast that touched on COVID-19. Uh, notably, in this, this blog post from Daniel X, Spotify CEO, he did not use the words Joe Rogan. 
And Joe Rogan then put out a Instagram post that kind of apologized, but not really. And he said he's, he was he was sorry Spotify was getting grief uh, and he pledged to have other viewpoints on his podcast. And there has been what I think is wish casting on the part of a lot of commentators that like, well, this is just the start of things really snowballing. It's not just going to be other Canadian folk rock singers. It's Taylor Swift or someone is going to come down and and announce that they are leaving Spotify. It has not happened. Why do you think it hasn't happened? Musicians have disliked Spotify for basically since it, it started because they think that it's devaluing their music. They think the quality's not good enough. They're not getting paid enough. And yet, even when it comes to their most fundamental earnings, musicians cannot unite to do anything. And so the idea that they're going to do so over a podcast that they probably don't listen to. I mean, Neil Young even said, I think, in some statement that he hasn't listened to Joe Rogan's podcast. He just saw a letter from doctors and thought it was offensive. So that's one reason. Another is that the music industry, you know, capital I industry has no interest in boycotting Spotify or in plucking artists one by one or in having to tell, you know, whenever an artist is upset about something, having to take music off. And so there's not really this sort of this institutional momentum behind it. And what's what's resulted instead, I think, is people who have some axe to grind with Spotify, some over Rogan and some not using this as sort of a way to express their frustration. So you have, uh, you know, a, a rock bands who are upset that they're not getting paid enough. You have a musician in India, Ri, who didn't like Joe Rogan's comments about race. There's just a lot of frustration that is kind of coming out. And this is the biggest scandal for, for Spotify about Rogan to date. Cause you know, his, his previous scandals have come and gone without them having to do anything like this. So this is more significant than, say, what happened when he had a guest who was transphobic. But to have a, a full-on boycott, I just think, is is pretty hard. So there, But it wouldn't have to be a boycott, right? It would be a Taylor Swift or a Drake or someone with enough clout that them leaving Spotify, even for a brief period of time, would affect how Spotify operates and really force them to make a decision in theory. And and presumably, if you're Taylor Swift or Drake, you don't want to lose a lot of money by leaving Spotify for a long period of time, but you could certainly afford to do it for a brief period of time. And even if you don't have the right to do that, your label is actually not going to get in your way. They don't want to be fighting you. Um, so why do you think one of them has not stepped forward at this point? I will... I, I'm not avoiding your question. I wonder if if one of those people did it, if it would be enough. Taylor Swift and Drake are probably the two best examples. Mm -hmm. But if only one or two pop stars did it, yep. I think in isolation, that might not even be enough. It would need still to be the threat that if Taylor Swift does it, then Drake and Justin Bieber and Adele and yep. Rihanna and Beyonce. Why they haven't is an almost impossible question for me to answer. Other than I'll say, look, most contemporary pop stars are not political. Yep. They try to please as many people as possible, much as Spotify tries to please as many people as possible. Um, and so you have you don't see and uh, you don't see the the big stars of today uh, kind of pick these kinds of, of fights unless they have a really personal and invested interest. And, and even then, Taylor Swift is kind of the only one that we've seen. I mean, I've never seen a Drake take a big stand on a political issue. Right. And Taylor Swift, I mean, she'll tweet about politics sometimes, but her fights have been about money and power with Apple and with Spotify and a music manager who bought the rights to, to her music. Um, I also think, and I wonder what you think about this, that that a lot of them may not actually have a problem with with Rogan in general, and even some of the ideas that he's that he is hosting on his on his podcast. The idea of being skeptical of vaccines and vaccine safety or vaccine mandates. I would think that some of the artists themselves are actually amenable to those kind of questions, or believe their audience is that it's not a clear cut thing of like this horrible thing has happened, something must be done. Um, do you get any sense that that's part of the conversation as well? Well, there's there's no question that a lot of big musicians are either themselves skeptical of vaccines, uh, as we've seen in the case of someone like an, an Ice Cube, uh, or have fans who are skeptical of vaccines, or at least have the kind of skepticism that Joe Rogan plays into, where it's like, if you're 25 and healthy, do you really need it? You certainly don't, doesn't seem like you need a booster, because we have a, a still sizable percent of the US population and certainly the global population that is willfully unvaccinated. I also just think that for musicians, 
it's really tricky to play the game of, well, we need to put warnings or censor this person. I mean, if you think about the history of music, it's usually the musicians who are in the Joe Rogan position who have politicians or who have journalists saying, well, this is inappropriate. Like, why don't we take this rap music off the radio? Or why is this, you know, wh why are, why is Target selling Eminem's homophobic music? Um, and so them trying to, to not censor, but in some ways limit the speech or comment on the speech of another is something that I think a lot of musicians don't want to do. And this is an idea that, that Spotify leaned into in their blog post. We don't want to be censoring ideas. We don't want to be telling creators to, to not do whatever they want to do. Um, I assume that is intentional obfuscation of a, a main and simple point, which is, you know, as much as they describe themselves as a platform and often are, this is just a simple case of them hiring someone to make content and their yeah. response. Is there any is there any nuance that I'm missing here? Well, they definitely tried to in most of these big tech platforms have sort of tried to run away from the misinformation debate. And Spotify just leaned right into it because it sort of gave it a convenient way of not addressing what you were talking about, which is that Joe Rogan is a star that they've paid. Let's talk about what, if anything, Spotify wants to do or, or should be doing here. Again, their earnings are going to come out. They, like, they're like they going to have zero impact from, from what's been happening this week. What would have to happen for Spotify to make some other change? Would they have to see a huge number of people unsubscribing? Would, they, would there have to be a, 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 a critical mass of artists who left? What would be the thing that would tip them into making some other concession or step. Yeah, it would it would have to be a real damage to their business. Either enough artists leaving that it would then it might then cause customers to leave, um, or if they're already seeing some meaningful impact from you know the hashtag delete Spotify movement. If if they're going to miss out on a million customers or something like that. But even so, I think it would have to be pretty dramatic because I remember hearing in the case of of a, say a, a Netflix. They had that movie Cuties that yep. led to a whole campaign, and there was a noticeable uptick in churn. I, you know, I remember hearing that they lost several hundred thousand customers because of it. You know, it's not it didn't cause Netflix to take the movie off of its service. It's uh, funny because they they definitely said we're well, nothing's changing, we're all good. I have later heard them say, you know, we mishandled that and we screwed that up, and in retrospect, we would have done something different, especially with the marketing of that movie. But even yeah. that, they won't concede on the record. Let's talk a little bit about Joe Rogan um, and Spotify and that relationship. Um, two different questions. One, I, I've seen some people suggest, well, this could all be solved if 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 Joe Rogan or Spotify fact checked him or edited him. It suggests to me that those people have never listened to Joe Rogan, but I don't think that's entirely the case. Um, and and maybe misunderstand sort of like why Joe Rogan is at Spotify. What are the chances that that? Joe Rogan changes his show in some significant way, either voluntarily or Spotify makes him do it. Pretty low. Um, I mean, look, we don't know the specific terms of the deal in this case, but Spotify got Joe Rogan to continue being Joe Rogan. They didn't want to bring him in and change his show. There have been cases where that's happened. Like I'm not with with um, Alex Cooper's Caller Daddy. That show has changed since it became a Spotify exclusive, but it also changed in part because her co-host left or, um, uh, you know, she after split. A, yeah, this is, this yeah. is the Barstool podcaster. Yeah, after Barstool. after a dis after a contract dispute. And so the show probably needed to be reinvented anyways. What Joe Rogan is doing works for his audience. It works for Spotify. And so Spotify wants to do as little as possible to mess with, you know, whatever that sauce is. And I don't think they, you know, there's a, a fundamental part of that relationship where it's easier for Spotify if they don't have to oversee and manage Joe Rogan. They've had a hard time with podcasts that they've had to manage or delivering new hits. It's something that's been tough for them. They were mostly interested in his audience. And as long as he continues to do that, they don't have a lot of reason to, to futz with the show. Yeah, and that's the last question. So the, you said Joe Rogan is working for Spotify. Uh, my colleague Ashley Carmen from The Verge wrote a piece last year saying Joe Rogan's audience and clout uh, has shrunk since he went exclusive to Spotify. Um, that doesn't, e even if that's true, um, and I think people have disputed it, uh, but does, is that a problem for Spotify? They wanted his audience. They also wanted to sort of set up, you know, to, to stake a claim and saying we are super serious about podcasting. We've gone and got the biggest podcaster in the world. Um, do we know what that has done for them one way or the other? It's benefited them 
in a couple of ways in that at least for a short period of time, their stock price went way up. And everyone at the company was very excited about it. Every time they announced some big new deal, the stock would go up even more. And Rogan was really the big winner there. And it has definitely increased their advertising business. Their, you know, it was it was really just a subscription business for most of its existence. They would occasionally, you know, say something uh, to the effect that we're going to build an advertising business and it wouldn't happen. As they've invested in podcasting, as their user base has continued to grow. They now have an advertising business that this year will certainly be north of a billion dollars. And that's meaningful revenue for them and, and a reason to keep investing in podcasting. Some of the bloom is is off the rose there. The stock price has receded because I think investors you're, thought- You're talking about the podcasting push in general, not Joe Rogan yeah, specifically. The, the, the enthusiasm for Spotify's big move into podcasting has waned a little bit among its investors and, and even among some of its employees because it hasn't delivered the immediate result that I think some mistakenly thought it would. Whereas I thought Spotify was always pretty clear that this would be a kind of a multi-year build and you wouldn't see results right away, but maybe five years down the line, they'd have a big advertising business. The music industry wouldn't collect quite as much of their revenue. They could maybe be profitable. And it's really too soon to know the result of that. Um, One of the tricky parts about it though, that I think this does, this incident has exposed is that as they invest more and more in podcasting, it further irritates the music industry with whom it had kind of settled into uh, somewhat of a detente where everyone was happy because the numbers were going in the right direction. Um, and, and to one of the points that you made earlier, podcasting is, is very different from music in that podcasting is always going to elicit frustration and angry opinions, especially among some of those musicians who, who upload their work. So while I think this particular scandal is is nearing its end, I certainly think we'll see more of them. You are a very serious journalist. You work for a very serious journalistic outlet, um, so you don't get to uh, make things up or speculate generally in your stories. But this is a podcast. You can say whatever you want. Uh, what do you think happens here? Are we done with this story, or does it have legs? Is there another shoe to drop? I just mixed all my metaphors. I think the immediate controversy wanes because there is not enough new people to jump in and and boycott and there's even a chance that some of the people who have boycotted will put their stuff back um but that this does present sort of a a first strike if you will or a model for people who want to fight rogan or fight spotify more broadly and we'll see musicians try it again and i'll be very curious whether it requires someone like a lucian grange or rob stringer or or a cooper the heads of the three record labels to say something much as they did once upon a time about doing exclusive deals for music with Apple or Spotify. If they have to draw a line in the sand and say, we're not going to pull your music just because you don't like these people. We have contractual relationships that we can't violate or, or if they can't do that. Lucas Shaw, Bloomberg, excellent podcast guest. I will see you around the internet. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Lucas. In a minute, we're going to hear from Lauren Williams and Brian Morrissey, but first a word from a sponsor. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today, I've got two guests who used to run media companies for other people, and they are now building their own things. One is doing a solo operation aimed at a business audience. Another is running a nonprofit built for black audiences. And she also used to be my boss. Here's Brian Morrissey, formerly of Digiday, now the sole proprietor of The Rebooting, 
and Lauren Williams, formerly editor-in-chief at Vox, and now the CEO and co-founder of Capital B. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Peter. Um, I'm going to ask each of you guys to describe what audience you're trying to reach with your publication, first and foremost, and then we'll go from there. I want to talk about business models and funding and everything else, but but first tell me who you're trying to reach with your publication. Let's start with you, Lauren. Well, we're trying to reach Black audiences nationally and um, with our local newsrooms, we're trying to reach them locally. And um, the the specific audiences that we're trying to reach with, you know, in those two buckets are are a little different. Um, with our with our national newsroom, we want to reach folks who are already, you know, pretty engaged in the news and who are seeking more representation stories that are um, that cover black issues better and from angles that speak to them more um, you know folks who have New York Times um, subscriptions and um, want more and better and on the local level we uh, we really want to reach, those folks, of course, folks who are engaged in the news, that's the kind of low hanging fruit in our local um, in our local areas. But we also very much have a pro-democracy mission where we want to engage with black people in our in our local areas who are completely disengaged from the news, who are disconnected from the media, who um, believe it's not for them, who don't trust it, who um, are susceptible to misinformation and disinformation. Um, that's the that's the real long game. Um, we want to create a trusted news organization for folks who are really not receiving trusted information right now. And, and just to fill in a blank or two, the, the idea, to make it clear, is there's a national publication, capital B, and there's also a local publication that right now is based in Atlanta, sort of a hub-and-spoke model. The idea is to expand to other cities. I should also say that capital B launched this week, so thank you for coming on during a hectic week. I'm sure you are sleep-deprived, so I appreciate it. Of course. Brian, tell us uh, who the rebooting is aimed at. Yeah, so uh, the rebooting is sort of born out of my own experience working in in the media industry. And the last 10 years, I was the president and editor-in-chief of Digiday, which is a vertical media company focused on uh, media and marketing. Um, but we also had publications um, like Glossy, which was focused on fashion and beauty and modern retail, which is obviously about retail. Um, so what I want to uh, do is I want to build like the essential resource for anyone building and operating media businesses, people like Lauren and also you, Peter, um, because, you know, this is focused on management and leadership teams um, of building these businesses, but also everyone who works in these businesses. I think, as we all know, on the journalism side, like I remember entering the profession, people, reporters acted like as a badge of honor not to understand how their businesses made money. Um, and then like a lot of, uh, you know, with a lot of the challenges to the business models, you know, people wanted to understand more. Um, so it's all the people within media businesses, but also adjacent businesses like advertisers, agencies, tech platforms, investors, um, because I think this is a really interesting time for media. Um, we're seeing a lot of new publishing businesses start with a lot of different business models. And I, to me, it's it, it reminds me of the mid 2000s into like 2010 when we saw a similar wave of, of new media um, or new publishing ventures. And I just think it's slightly different now. A lot of times people are launching without um, depending on advertising as much. A lot of times they're, they're more focused on a, on a specific audience rather than trying to build a general news site for everyone. And that's because, again, the business models change. But I think this is you know, one of the stories of our time. We need to have um, a sustainable uh, publishing ecosystem so people are informed. We see what happens when people are, are not informed. And, and I do believe that credible, reliable information um, shouldn't be a luxury good. It shouldn't be only for uh, the richest people in society. So there's a need for a whole bunch of different um, sustainable business models. So let's talk about business models. Both of you are giving away your content for free. Brian, you're aimed at a business audience. I would think you could charge them. 
Uh, Lauren, you are explicitly a nonprofit. I think you raised $9 million, but you are asking your readers to contribute, I think 96 bucks and or more per year if they want to. Um, how did you each arrive at, at, at the model you're starting with? Let's start with you, Lauren, because I would think there's a lot of, you had a lot of different options. You obviously worked for a venture-backed for-profit business up until uh, last year. Why go nonprofit for this route? It's funny, it didn't even <laughs> enter our minds that we would be uh, for profit um, as we were thinking about it. And part of that is that my co-founder, uh, Akoto Aforiata, she, at the time that we were coming up with Capital B, she was the managing editor at The Trace, which is a nonprofit, um, single issue uh, news organization uh, about gun guns in America. So while I had been spending the last uh, six years at that point at Box, she had been spending the last six years building the trace from the ground up. So she, so her experience had been very rooted in, in nonprofits. And so that was, um, you know, a perspective that she was bringing to the table in the same way that I was bringing my Vox perspective to the table. And what we were really thinking about in in, in, in going nonprofit was was connecting connecting that to the type of journalism that we felt was missing the most in black media and the type that we most wanted to do. And if you hear me describe a you know a, a news organization that wants to do enterprise and 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 features and 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 in investigative stories about systemic racism and criminal justice and climate and politics for Black people, that doesn't really seem like something that's going to be a huge win in terms of ad revenue. Um, certainly not long term. And, you know, we didn't want to have to compromise our mission to bring that sort of important work to our audience for the business model. And if that was the only option, we would have figured out a way to make it work. But it's not the only option. And, and you know, there's nonprofits out there that have really shown how to thrive and raise a lot of money and do really good journalism. And, you know, we thought that that was the best route for us. And Brian, um, mm -hmm. I mean, I remember talking to you, I think, before you formally started the rebooting, you were very interested in newsletters and Substack. It's you seem like an obvious candidate to be asking me to pay five bucks a month. Um, I probably call it a business expense. Maybe my employer would actually pay for it. Whatever the number is, you pick the number, <laughs> okay. uh, and it seems like and and seems like you could offer a free version, a paid version. It just seems like a no brainer. You're aimed at a business audience. Why not ask those businesses to to pay you? Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's a good question. I mean for me, um, look B two B. Generally, publishing is is either consumer focused or business focused. There's there's some in between models, but. Generally, you know, B2B has a lot of advantages and, and one of them is that people tend to pay for and, and pay a fair amount of money for information that helps them make more money. Um, and so that was definitely an option. But I do, I believe that in a, that there's a diversity of business models, like Lauren said, um, now that you don't have to pigeonhole. And I think a lot of times in publishing, it's like a children's soccer game where like the ball is on one part of the field and a whole clump of kids are, are around it. Um, and, you know, it used to be, you know, viral publishing was the ball in one corner of the field and everyone clumped around that. And and now it's subscriptions. But I think, you know, the best way to make money is, is lots of different ways. And I knew from my experience uh, at Digiday that, you know, subscriptions are a really powerful business model, but that it's really important to to have like a top of the funnel that um, basically, you know, gets the brand out there before you try to convert the people. So I really wanted to have a, a, a model that allowed free access for a long time before I, I fig to figure out like what a subscription would be that would match the editorial mission because I want to reach people 
um, who are building all kinds of sustainable media businesses. And so, you know, some of them, you know, would be willing to to pay hopefully hundreds of dollars a year, but some of them would be unable to. And so I think what's important is, and I think what's what's interesting is when you talk with journalists who start their own you know, media company, whether it's Substack, or whatever, they tend to start like when Lauren was saying, you starting with the, the editorial mission, and then you're fitting the business model around it. Unfortunately, the story of publishing um, over the last couple decades has been the absolute um, opposite. You know, the, the business model um, has dictated the editorial mission in some cases. Um, and, you know, that's because a lot of these businesses were um, really advertising businesses. And so advertising requires... By the way, sometimes that can work out really well, though. The the athletic guys are quite open about their origin story is they wanted to build a subscription business, and then they ended up with sports. Yeah. Not that they were passionate. I mean, they, they'll tell you they care about sports, but they wanted to build something with recurring revenue from consumers, and that's what they built. Yeah. No, I just think you build different products, right? And like, it's not like there's not one way to do anything, right? So it's not like, you know, uh, publishing businesses started by journalists are going to be better than publishing businesses started by, you know, the quote unquote business side. I just think that journalists tend to approach things slightly different. Um, a lot of times it, it is, it's mission first. Um, it's wanting to put something out into the world and then figure out a way to make it, um, sustainable. There's downsides to that. I just think you get a different product. Lauren, um, did you guys spend, so you said from the jump, this would be a nonprofit. Um, was there ever a point where someone came up to you with a big pile of money? I'm thinking, especially you're putting this together in 2020, 2021. There's a lot of people who probably wanted to be associated with a black owned, black led, black uh, publication for black readers. I would think there'd be some people very eager to invest. Did anyone offer you a big bag of cash for a chunk of the company? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think that people want to seem like they'd be really eager, but it's n no, they're not, they're really not as eager as they, they're not that eager. Did, did that climate help when it came to raising money? I think you guys have raised 9 million, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's a mixed bag. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it, it has, it is certainly, I don't think that we would have raised this amount of money in in 2019, I'll say that. But I think that, I think that when you maybe, you know, look at, you know, some of my credentials and some of my co-founders credentials and, you know, the work that we have done on, on you know, our our business planning and and everything and and you look at you know some some other um uh people who started media companies and uh, you know i i think that like the 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 expectation that some of the people who are not funders who we've talked to um they're like oh you're it's going to be so easy for you for you all um and i'm just like it's not, you know, we're, we're two black women and, um, and it's, it's just not going to be that easy for us to raise the amount of money that we're trying to raise. But we, but we, but we, and so, you know, we, we did it, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like one person giving us five, $5 million or, or, or something like that. We, it was, a, it was a slow road. Um, and I, and it would have been a lot harder without 2020 happening for sure. And, and there are a couple models for this, right? There's the Texas Tribune is I think the most successful nonprofit. I'm thinking it's the, certainly the most prominent nonprofit, uh, news publication, uh, the 19th, which is founded by a Texas Tribune alum. Emily Ramshaw has been on this show aimed at women specifically run by women, um, are there other people that you're modeling what your your what capital B will be like? Are there other other models for this, or are those the sort of two most prominent ones in your mind? I think that there's there are a lot of I, I would say there's a lot of points of inspiration. I think that um, the way that Texas Tribune and, and the Nineteenth have both diversified their their nonprofit business 
is an enormous inspiration. Um, and both Evan and Emily are friends and really, really uh, open about how they do it and how they've done it um, and really helpful. And their events program in particular is something that we want to emulate and um, sort of are emulating with our events program. Um, we, you know, there's a, there are hub and spoke models um, popping up like this. And there's, you know, Chalkbeat has been a hub and spoke model in the nonprofit um news world that is uh, similar to what Capital B is doing. Marshall Project is also starting their uh, hub and spoke um, model as well. Those are covering educational news, uh, justice news. Yep. And, um, and there's also, there are local, either like explicitly for black audiences or black led with a when you know, with a with a focus on black and brown communities, you know, nonprofit um, news organizations that are um, that have opened in the last few years that do you know community engaged um, news that are really inspiring to us, like you know, City Bureau and Outlier in Detroit and um, MLK Fifty in Memphis and um, they're not exactly the same model as ours, but they are doing a type of journalism locally that we find really inspiring. You you um you write in Capital E about why you guys built this and why you decided to build it. And I just want to quote here. Um, you talk about uh, the idea coming out of June 2020 when our peers were, I'm quoting you here, not for the first time publicly voicing our compounding frustrations with the industry, the lack of trust and support from white newsroom leaders, the fallacy of objectivity as the journalistic gold standard, the personal toll of reporting on issues that impact people the most while being one of the few black people on staff. So you've, you've laid it out pretty clearly, but I'm wondering if there if you can be any more specific about the frustrations you felt in June 2020. We remember back then what it was like to be in, especially in New York City on the East Coast in the pandemic, and we had George Floyd's murder and the protests. Um, what were you feeling that was different than, say, anyone else who worked at Vox or Vox Media at the time? What was specific, specifically difficult for you then? I think it's something Okoto and I, and I think, of, you know, the handful of other Black newsroom leaders were experiencing and and was that like it was almost like a particularly lonely place uh being um being a a a newsroom leader in a mainstream news organization um because it was also a horrible time to be a newsroom leader no matter who you are um it was really really rough uh um Ad market looked like it was going to zero. Yeah, no, things were things were things were rough uh, in that time. Taking away I- any of the 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 race the racial stuff and 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 so that stressor on top of it, um, and the and the expectation of as a newsroom leader who is black needing to be an exemplar, needing your newsroom to be an exemplar of the type of newsroom that should be kind of like the perfect place for journalists of color to thrive. But knowing that, you know, there's different people and different personalities and, you know, a culture cannot be just entirely in in one person's hands and particularly when we're remote and everyone's you know nervous about are we getting furloughed or what's happening in the future and people are scared of getting covid and covering all this different all these different um uh stories that are really difficult and i'm at home with my baby and my autistic child trying to manage all of it it was the hardest moment of my life for sure, personally and professionally, to just harness all of those things. Plus, you know, there was an, there was an additional pressure that I felt um, that 
nobody could understand or only very, very few people could understand. Um, and, and, and then it was, it was also just us kind of looking out, not even for ourselves, because a lot of what a lot of the journalists who were speaking up and, 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 you know, rising up in their newsrooms about were things that didn't really apply to us because we had, because we were in the positions we were in, we had obviously been valued by our newsrooms. We'd been promoted up and, and, um, you know, we were in positions of, of power and we'd been appreciated. And so, you know, they weren't necessarily complaints that we specifically had. Um, but we knew that, that there was so much frustration and pain throughout the industry, um, and so even if it wasn't something felt specifically by us, it was something that we were acknowledging because we had been hearing it forever and maybe had experienced it at other places. So it was a very just a complicated set of feelings. Lauren, I'm wondering, did that like accelerate you taking the leap to start Capital B? Or had you already, were you going to do it no matter what? No, I mean, that was the month that we decided to do it. I mean, this was the backdrop for yeah. this was the backdrop of us kind of kind of deciding to do it. I mean, I don't I don't know if I I don't know if that if that mo that month hadn't happened, if I would have done if we would have even done it, you know, um, or maybe there would have been some other catalyst. But it was it was the kind of aha moment for us of like we should think about for both ourselves and our professional fulfillment and and audiences out there that aren't getting what they need um we should think about what we could do yeah. brian did not to be flipped but did you have anything close to that aha no. moment i mean <laughs> no. it seems like a pretty linear thing for you you were doing like one thing theater. at a big org and like then you like theater. i'll do the same thing no 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 i just not a trap, and I, I've never, I've never had a workplace Zoom with you. So tell me why you decided to do this instead of raising alpacas or writing about petroleum or what anything else you could have done. Why, why go, why go back and do the same thing but on your own, basically? Yeah, no, I think that like um, the the pandemic and the the many crises that that piled up on top of the pandemic caused a lot of people to reassess what they're doing, you know, and. In some in very profound ways, some in small ways. I think the what, what people are calling the Great Resignation. It's no surprise that it, it's it's happening now. And I think a lot of people go to stimulus payments and stuff like this. But I think it was just the fact that you know when the world stands still and we have all of these crises that come on top of one another, it causes people to to you know by nature reassess what they're doing and think what do I want to do for the next five, 10 years? Um, so for me, it was just more that I wanted to do something solo that was, um, you know, particularly my own. Um, I found it very rewarding, you know, running a newsroom and, 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 you know, building sustainable brands. Um, and, but at the, at the same time, like, you know, you go through different phases of life and, and I wanted to get closer to actually making the product that I want to make. Because a lot of times when you're leading stuff, you're trying to get other people to make um, the, the product in the way that you see um, uh, it, it should be made. And so I like that opportunity. But I think that overall, like we're seeing this, maybe the great resignation is really the great reassessment in that a lot of people are rethinking um, what they want to be doing. And, and different people have, have, have different abilities to do that. And I think that that kind of sucks. But like, um, you know, for those who, you know, I, I recognize that I had a lot of, you know, advantages. And, um, but at the same time, I, I felt like that would be good to, 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 um, to use uh, as leverage in some ways. So, you know, starting, starting from scratch, like, you know, not doing subscriptions, I was able to get like, you know, sponsors and stuff like this before I even started. And I, I recognize that that was just, you know, the privilege of having done this for many years and, and have, having a lot of relationships where people would trust me that I was going to um, deliver. And so I think it's all part of it. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of, of new publications. I think that's why a lot of people 
a lot of journalists are going to Substack. They really just, they want to do something different and they want to do something that they feel is theirs. You made me an excellent uh, uh, transition here because this idea of the great resignation and the great reassessment, and, and we write a lot about it. It's very popular. Everyone's sort of using this moment to sort of say, I want to do something else that's more satisfying to me. And I would think in Lauren's case, that would be an advantage when she was out trying to hire people because she'd find other folks who were similarly uh, upset or stymied um, and wanted to do something new working with her. We talked before this and she said that hiring was a real challenge and she said actually it's because of the pandemic and the associated challenges. So I'd like to hear more about that. What What is the stumbling block when you're trying to hire someone to your new startup? Why aren't they leaping at the, the opportunity? And you've hired, I think, 10 people so far, right? Around? Oh, we have a staff of 16 Sorry, my, now. my apologies. And, you know, and I would say in regards to the Great Resignation, like, I, I mean, I didn't make the call to officially leave until I got funding to pay my salary. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I got, I've got kids, I got a mortgage, you know, daycare is expensive. Like, I just, I don't, I don't have it like that. And uh, more power to the people who, who do. But yeah, like, I just couldn't ever just drop everything and, 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 and quit. And I'm a, I'm a pretty financially uh, conservative person. Um, and so I and I and so I understand people who and I and I actually don't really know anyone who's done it. I don't I don't know that many people who've done it. But so that said, um, you know, I found that hiring for my leadership positions has been much simpler, to be honest. Um, I think when you are hiring into a, a leadership position in a startup and, you know. It, I think that the. If you read our story in the Washington Post with Simone Sebastian, who came from to us from the Washington Post, and Jillian White came to us from the Atlantic, um, and you know their their reasons for coming are very similar to to my and Akoto's reasons for launching Capital B. Um, you know, you've been around the block for a while, and you've seen how you know you've had a lot of experiences, and this seems really attractive and you also know that you're going to have power over the thing and there's just less uncertainty in that and i think um in and you're probably further writers, along in your career right yeah i think yeah. i think in recruiting writers i think that's a little different right like you just have to trust and <laughs> you have to trust the people uh that ha you know for a thing that hasn't launched yet um that they're just going to like keep the lights on and uh, you should, you know, leave your job where you know that you're going to get a steady paycheck, even if maybe like there's lots of frustrations that you have there. Um, and that's a, it's, it's just tougher to uh, recruit for those positions before you launch. And I think in a pandemic, especially when I think I, I, I finding that people are much more like hunkering down than, um, than being super free to, to leave. Additionally, um, I, I would say additionally, people don't, uh, this is the moment when publications are not trying to let go of their black reporters and they are countering aggressively uh, for, for every offer that we make and our, and our salaries are competitive. Um, so, so yeah, t hiring, is, hiring is competitive right now. There's lots of obvious advantages to working at a big company that you guys knew you were going to lose. What What's something that, that you didn't value or didn't really understand the value of and then left your 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 big company and said, oh, or biggish company said, oh, that was really good. I didn't realize I missed that or I didn't realize the value of that at the time. I mean, there's just so many little things to do that, or I don't even want to minimize them and say little, but there's just so many T's to cross and I's to dot and things that departments take care of that I just, you know, did not have to think about. And now I have to think about all of them. And that takes away from, you know, raising the money and helping with the journalism. And and yeah, so that's that's something that I really miss about about the big company part of it. Um, and it's going to be this way for a, for for a long time. And so I'm going to have to get used to it. But but all of the compliance and administrative and HR and uh, all of it is is it's a lot. 
Brian, is there a creature comfort or or thing you you actually disliked working at a big co? And now you're like, oh man, that was pretty good. I mean, look, I think there's there's the advantages is you, uh, the advantages you have autonomy, right? The disadvantages you have no infrastructure that you have like at an established publication. I mean, publishers fulfill a whole bunch of different functions, you know, only one of which is is the content and even the the selling of the ads in the business side. There's all kinds of there's there's marketing and there's product and there's tech and there's accounting and like I mean, anyone in the sort of journalism field is like, I want to, you know, become an entrepreneur. I like want to sit them down, have them open up QuickBooks and, you know, go through it and then be like, how do you feel now? Like, because you got to do lots of stuff. And so for me, it was like, I want to try to do everything solo and then understand which areas that I don't, um, either I, either I can't do well, or, um, it doesn't make sense for me necessarily to do. Cause I think that publishing can be a really good business as long as you keep the infrastructure costs low. And I, I feel like there's a lot of like platforms and outsourced services now that make that a lot, um, I wouldn't say easier because none of it is easy, um, but that make that a lot more realistic than before. But like Lauren said, it's it's still really hard. And um, a lot of that comes at like focusing on the, the core product, um, you know, going back and forth with advertisers in my case and stuff like it's, um, you know, it's you got to be really into it. Brian, you mentioned advertisers. That's what sponsored. That's what's keeping you afloat right now. Um, you're playing with different formats. One thing I've seen you do is is sort of basically a sponsored post where you're either interviewing someone, but they're a sponsor, or I think you've let them publish their own thing. Um, I think you do that with podcasts as well. Um, I can get the business rationale for it. Um, <laughs> it makes sense, and I think the readers are sophisticated and can understand it. And it also gives me uh, the heebie-jeebies. What what what's your experience? <laughs> doing that like did you have the similar apprehension and, and what's the feedback from from your readers and advertisers yeah you sent me a note about that no i mean i'm looking for different like business models as i said like um i really think it's important to match up the editorial mission to the business model i don't want to rush to subscriptions and have you know only a certain group of people who um can get value out of it so i think luckily for for my audience you know they're they're pretty sophisticated and they understand you know the trade-off you're either you know, I think we make publishing very overcomplicated in some ways because ultimately, like, you either pay, you either, you either pay direct money in order to support the creation of the content, or you pay with exposure of your attention to to advertising messages or, you know, commerce and affiliate and stuff like that. And and I think that's just how it works. Um, and anytime you have a new brand and you're in the market with established uh, brands, you have to differentiate in some ways, and you have to be able to find ways to offer um, different types of value. And I do think that we're seeing, you know, within the move from like institutions to individuals, part of that is because there's less trust in institutions these days across the board throughout society. And I think people generally trust individuals more. Um, so for me, like I... I don't. I can't just run banner ads because there's. You know. I think we've already seen that 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 is not um, really the path to sustainable media unless you've got many hundreds of millions of uh, users. And the the field that I'm focused on is simply does not have that. So I'm trying to figure out ways in in which to. You're always trying to balance it, right? You're trying to provide value for your audience, but you know ultimately uh the sponsors need to get value so i feel like this is a good is is a good approach for now um you know this so far i've gotten like pretty good feedback on it um it might not be for for everyone but i you know i actually adopted this from um this guy packy mccormick who has uh an amazing like mini media company called Not Boring. Um, I think he's got like 150,000 uh, email subscribers at this point. And um, he's building a really powerful model. He's a web model. three guy. He's a web, he's one of the web three guys, but he's not, he's not insane. Um, and, you know, he's, he, he does these sponsored deep dives that are unbelievably valuable on both sides. Like I read one yesterday. I'm like, this is amazing content. And, um, you know, for the the company, it uh, it's incredibly valuable. I mean, he even like takes uh, and he he makes investments in these companies. So I think there's just so many different models out there, and I I feel like the big challenge for 
for new brands is, is figuring out how you can stitch together the different, um, the different ways of making money in a way that makes sense for, you know, your, your editorial mission ultimately. What, what's the key to making that work? Because I mean, I, by the way, when you, you're holding up Packy as an example of something that's making it work and you're saying, well, not only is he taking their advertising money, he's also investing. So he's, he's triply conflicted, but, but beyond ethical concerns, table that for a second. What, what I've found whenever I've ventured into this world comes up mostly in the, in my, when I've done conference stuff is someone is investing, someone's giving you money and they want thought leadership. They want to be on stage. We generally don't allow that. Uh, so we do these luncheons where they can sort of pick a topic and the idea is people will come and sit at lunch and discuss a topic. And the real challenge with all of those is convincing advertiser X that the topic they're proposing is incredibly boring and that no one will show up for it and or that that topic is interesting, but it has to be a real discussion. It cannot be an infomercial. And there's lots of nodding and they'll say yes. And when push comes to shove, they end up insisting on a terrible topic that no one shows up for or a really boring speaker who's just promoting his media services. Um, how do you how do you navigate that? So you're actually providing content that works for both the reader and the sponsor. I mean, it's basically trust. Like, I mean, you have to, if you're going to do these kinds of models, you can't work with every single, um, every single company. Um, so, you know, ultimately like you do have to deliver value to your, your advertisers and, um, it can be hard because a lot of times, and I think we found this throughout, um, you know, the last 10, 15 years is a lot of times the needs for advertisers are in conflict with the, the, the needs for the audience. And, you know, it's really difficult to operate a, an indirect business model um, because you're trying to solve for very conflicting needs. Like your audience wants one thing, your advertisers want another thing. And by the way, the algorithms want something else. Like, and so you're trying to serve all of these different constituencies and, and making compromises along the way. And I think that's why a lot of people go straight to subscriptions because it's a cleaner model. Um, you make stuff, people pay you for the stuff. It's like, I don't know, I guess it's like running a restaurant in some ways. You make dinner and then you, you, you know, people sit down and you serve them dinner and they pay you money for it. It's definitely a cleaner model. I just think it comes also with its own downsides. Lauren, how are you going to reach your audience? How are you going to find an audience? How are they going to tell them about you? When I, when I got to Vox and you're running it, the whole company and definitely Vox.com was very Facebook oriented uh, and very interested in, in building products for Apple News and Snapchat and all the other platforms. And over time, I think sort of pulled away from a lot of that. Um, but you need to reach a lot of people who don't know you exist and maybe don't know they want you to exist. How do you get in front of them? Yeah, I mean, we are, I mean, we're going to have a different uh, strategy in each location we go into. But I mean, and in, in lo- I'll start with locally. Um, all of our our uh, local newsrooms, starting with Atlanta, they're going to have a community engagement editor. And um, the community engagement editor is going to be, you know, in charge of our social media presence. And so, you know, we'll be doing Instagram, we'll, and, and Twitter, we'll, we'll eat, we'll have a Facebook group for each local newsroom, not a separate Facebook page, but a, a group. Um, and, but, but their primary job is going to be to actually see people in person, um, to have, uh, community listening sessions, to, um, uh, hire freelance community ambassadors who have like jobs that have, have them interfacing with people a lot, um, who, uh, talk to folks and, and bring that information back to us. Uh, you know, we, we go, you know, we slowly canvas neighborhood to neighborhood to neighborhood. We circle back. This is a very long game um, and a strategic process. Um, we return to people we had previously spoken to. Um, and the idea is to really have it make a, make like a real tangible connection with the audience in addition to the traditional ways that we reach people Um you know, in the media. Um, and, 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 you know, locally, we also want to do a lot of partnerships with local newspapers and, and, and local websites and, um, the beauty of the 
our, you know, the beauty of the way that we're thinking about audience and competition is that we're not thinking about competition at all. And we want to put our content everywhere where there could be eyes that we might want to bring back to capital B and give it to the people for free. So, um, so, you know, we're trying all of those things to, to reach folks. You're, you're on day two, week one. Um, any, any feedback you've gotten either in the run up or even in, in the last couple of days that you've been live, it's a, oh, we, we should have incorporated that, or we didn't think about that, or that's on our list of things we wanted to get to eventually, but we're going to move it up. Or are you just scrambling and, and just keeping the site right now is up and running is all you can do. Yeah. I mean, it's, we got, it's, it's live. That's where we, <laughs> that's where we are right now. We did it. Um, we I haven't I haven't made we probably have gotten some I it has not gotten to me yet um but but yeah we're excited to we're excited to to get that from people and 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 get those ideas and and build in front of people you know we we have right now fewer than half of the reporters that we um we plan to to have over the next couple of months and so we have a ton of hiring to do and a ton of building to do and we're going to do it in front of the audience so i'm excited to do that i want to wind this up with a, a prediction slash stretch goal slash kpi where do, where do you want to be in a year brian we'll start with you what's 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 going to success what will success look like for you a year from now I, success in a year will be understanding like whether one, this is like working as like a one person business, but two, ideally what like whether this can work as like a 10 person business or more. Um, I, I, I believe it can. Um, I just want to build it like slowly because I think a lot of times I know in covering this space, remember like when it was like uh, Upworthy built like a 50 million person business in 18 months and you would always find these, you know, viral Nova and stuff. And like Lauren was saying, like a lot of this is is block by block. It is like uh, I think one of the good things about this new wave of innovation is there's there's more of a flight to focus, and people are sort of understanding the value of niche. But to do that, it takes a long time, and it's hard. It's harder than like algorithms, and um, you know, actually connecting with real people, and you have to do stuff that doesn't scale, and um, that can be the fun part. Um, it's like it it can drive you crazy but like that's what you got to do and you have to like prove it every day to whatever community um you're focused on because i think there's a lot of opportunity in in serving specific communities um and that that requires um doing a whole bunch of different things um and to put meaning to to what you're after lauren you get the last word where do you want to be in a year um we want to be in an additional market and um you say market singular one market one additional market um and we want to be a real player in in black media and i think that can mean a lot of different things but i think that gaining the audience in in atlanta and nationally and doing uh, the impactful work that we want to do, um, and continuing to to raise the money to to build is is the big goal. Lauren Williams from Capital B, Brian Morrissey from the Rebooting. Thank you both. Good luck. I'm fans of you both. I wish you luck. Thank Thanks, you, guys. Thanks. Thanks again to Lauren and Brian. I'm rooting for both of them. Thanks again to Lucas Shaw, who I also root for in a different way. Uh, thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring this show to you for free. Thanks to Travis and Jelani for putting this thing together. And thanks to you guys for listening and writing and tweeting and yelling at me on the street. No, no one has once yelled at me on the street about this podcast, but you could. I wouldn't be offended. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week.